from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is Ag Day. It's coming. I think there is a tilt in the odds towards a wetter than average winter. What the arrival of El Nino could mean this winter and beyond weather-wise. Building up the soil by adding cover crops. So I need more carbon, so I'm gonna be a heavy, more of a heavy carbon cover crop. Advice to help you flip your soil. And time has almost run out on getting a new farm bill. But for some of our producers that are on the margins, that might not be enough. But should producers be worried? The latest right now on Ag Day. Ag Day, presented by Pioneer. What's next happens when blood, sweat, and tears meet rain, wind, and sun. Pioneer, what's next happens here. Good morning, I'm Clinton Griffiths. The 2018 Farm Bill is set to expire tomorrow. And with Congress focused on avoiding a government shutdown, experts say there appears to be little hope of a new farm bill getting passed by the deadline. Ag Day's Michelle Rook joins us. And Michelle, what does the lack of a farm bill mean for producers? With the current farm bill expiring on September 30th, there are some farm programs that will be impacted, but FSA officials tell me there are many other programs that have funding and authorization all the way through the end of the calendar year. This isn't the first time the Farm Bill has expired and been extended by Congress for a period of time. That may be the case this year as Ag Committee leadership has indicated they're likely to get legislation passed before the new year. FSA Administrator Zach Ducheneau tells me some programs will be affected, but there's flexibility as farm and nutrition programs cross many agencies and have a variety of expiration dates. Yeah, there's some that won't expire till the end of the year, and as I understand it, there are even some that had a extension of their authorization and some recent legislation. And for many farm programs that expire, there's a precedent of Congress making those retroactive when they do pass legislation. However, Ducheneau says it's a dangerous precedent. It's, it's as important for the peace of mind of our producers as it is the actual program participation because oftentimes when the delay happens or the programs expire or we get an extension, Congress has given the authority to, to have a retrospective look at getting folks in the programs. But for some of our producers that are on the margins, that might not be enough. Risk management agency officials have also informed agents they have plans to keep insurance programs operating after the farm bill expiration. However, this is all contingent on the government avoiding a shutdown. I'm Michelle Rook reporting for Ag Day. All right, thanks, Michelle. And work continues in Washington to avoid a government shutdown on Sunday. The White House calling on House Republicans to back the Senate's bipartisan stopgap bill that would temporarily keep the government running with a continuing resolution. But some members of the House GOP aren't showing signs of compromise. Speaker McCarthy needs to stop letting the MAGA radicals drive his decisions and do the obvious and sensible thing. Follow the Senate's lead and pass a bipartisan CR to prevent this reckless shutdown. If the folks in my district want somebody who's just going to come here and vote for continuing resolutions and omnibus bills, they've had other choices in other elections, but they chose to send me, and I'm here to fight. There have been 20 gaps in federal funding since 1976. Most of them occurred under a divided government where a single party isn't in control of the White House, House, and Senate. The Senate also taking on the issue of foreign ownership of U.S. farmland this week. The Committee on Agriculture, Nutrition and Forestry hearing testimony 
from other members of the Senate as well as a panel of experts. Now the Senate Ag Committee GOP putting out this map which shows just how much farmland is in foreign hands coming in at just over 3% of all private ag land. It adds up to about 40 million acres. Now Canada is the largest foreign investor holding 31% of those acres. China holds under 1% or roughly 384,000 acres. But Chairwoman Debbie Stabenow, Michigan says foreign land ownership has increased by 66% since 2010. Our national security depends on a food system that is safe, secure, affordable, abundant, and resilient. As foreign entities continue their acquisitions of U.S. food and agricultural assets, American farmers and families deserve to know that these transactions receive proper scrutiny. We have uh, seen over and over again individuals that have uh, come across our southern border illegally that are Chinese nationals that end up in the marijuana farms and they're working off their debt, literally being moved from farm to farm to farm. They literally don't even know what town that they're in or often what state that they're in when they're actually arrested and the operation is taken down. So that brought my attention to what was happening and asked me to, got me to ask a simple question. If that's happening in Oklahoma, what is happening in the rest of the nation? And what are we seeing? And what I've seen is a tremendous rise in foreign ownership of land around our country. Republican Senator Joni Ernst of Iowa telling the committee the 1978 Agricultural Foreign Investment Disclosure Act must be modernized to, quote, increase reporting, strengthen oversight, and send a strong message to our adversaries that American farms are not their playground, end quote. The topic of America's farmers also coming up during this week's Republican presidential debate broadcast on Fox Business Network. The U.S. and China are in this fierce economic competition. It's hurting American businesses, and there is blowback against American farmers because China then targets them in retaliation. How would you as president protect American farmers and ranchers from that kind of retaliation from a foreign government like China? Well, first of all, we've got the best farmers and ranchers in the world right here in America. If they have a level playing field, they can outcompete anyone in the world. But this is part of the larger issue that we're talking about here, which is we're in a Cold War with China. The Biden administration won't admit that. But we're also in an economic war through the, what we're doing with agriculture and energy. And we're also in a war with them relative to cyber war. We get attacked every day in North Dakota, every state, every school district, our tribes all being attacked every day by either China, Russia, Iran, or North Korea. North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum among the seven candidates taking part in the debate. Missing from the lineup, former President Donald Trump, who instead campaigned in Michigan. Now, the next Republican debate is scheduled to take place in early November. Energy prices also making an appearance during the debate, just as oil climbed to a one-year high Wednesday. Futures for West Texas crude rose nearly $3.5 to near $94 a barrel. Brent crude closed above 96 now that's its highest settlement this year. A huge drop in U.S. crude stocks and tight global supplies helping to drive those prices higher. Now last week, stockpiles dropped below 22 million barrels, the lowest point since July of 2022. Now the Biden administration has significantly reduced oil stocks in the petroleum reserve, cutting them by nearly half in an effort to ease higher domestic gas prices. Harvest is rolling right along in the Corn Belt, but some areas could still see some rain today. Meteorologist Matt Engelbrecht has the latest. Yeah, we're setting up that next pattern, which is going to bring dry and warm weather in and across a good portion of the United States. But in between the trough and the ridge, 
is we'll get the wet weather. So coming up for our Friday and see we've got uh, part off the uh, part of the East Coast inundated with some light to moderate showers and then back over here into the Dakotas, possibly some snow uh, coming down uh, into the Northwest Pacific Northwest Friday afternoon and also into Saturday. Pieces of energy are going to be coming in and around uh, the jet stream. And that's where you see pockets of rain developing right along this line, almost kind of like railroad tracks and then the train is moving on through. A different story as we head south of these lines, that's where the ridge is starting to set up and between uh, this half circle here, which is a trough and this half circle there, uh, we're going to see again that stagnant pattern in the jet stream uh, set up across the United States. And it's actually going to what's called amplify, get even bigger Saturday, Sunday and into this weekend, kind of shutting everything down in regards to rain chances and then lifting those temperatures up. Different story out on the West Coast with this trough. It is going to be wet. It is going to be cool for an extended period of time. And on the east coast, on the east side of the, the right side of your screen on the east coast is where we have another chance of some rain. Go ahead and take a look at your screen here. And if this photo doesn't say harvest time, I don't know what does. Jason sent this one in, bringing in this year's corn crop as the sun goes down. Great to see. I'll have more on your forecast coming up. A major joint venture between two ag businesses is announced. We have details next. And later, multiple factors are emerging in the Pacific to set up an El Nino winter. We'll look at what to expect and why this may not be a typical El Nino event in the country. Two of the largest businesses in agriculture are working toward a joint venture. On Wednesday, Agco and precision technology giant Trimble announcing a $2 billion deal. Ag equipment manufacturer Agco says it's agreed to buy an 85% interest in Trimble's ag assets and technologies, adding that it's the biggest deal in Agco's 33-year history. Now, Agco will now be the exclusive provider of Trimble technology. The CEO of Trimble says the joint venture complements Agco's precision planting business and will help them better serve farmers and other OEMs. Now, the deal is expected to close in the first half of 2024. Corn continuing to climb on Thursday, so can we end the week with more gains than losses? Michelle Rook is back with more in Markets Now. Grains inning mixed on Thursday. Rich Nelson Allendale joining us with analysis. And Rich, let's talk about that corn market, fifth higher close there. Is this short covering going into the report or into the quarter positioning or what's going on? You know, I definitely say it's uh, kind of all, all those things all put together. Uh, a lot of questions about what can be seen with these grain stock changes lined up here for uh, tomorrow's uh, or for today's discussion. A lot of big issues for this uh, discussion on not just uh, old crop stock numbers, but also what type of production revisions may be seen for 2022. Uh, on top of that, month end, quarter end positioning and unknowns with uh, whether we'll have a government shutdown or whatnot. I think those are all contributing factors right now. Yeah. And corn actually closed above a little bit of short-term resistance anyways. And so if we can keep going here, um, do you think a harvest low is going to be put in in this market? For myself, I, I really don't think so. I think I still think that's a quite a bit of ways away and quite a bit lower pricing still ahead. The issue for us right now is so far this market still has the Argentine dryness story, which is still valid at least for the next couple of weeks here. Uh, on top of that, uh, we still have a lot of questions about this uh, corn and soybean yield. So I think until we see some finalized numbers on those issues, we can we can hold at these current prices here. 
Uh, soybeans have had a recent correction. Um, we're back at least above the $13 mark here. But, you know, can we hold on to that, especially on harvest pressure coming at us and with the Brazilian competition that we've seen? I think on this one, it's probably a little tougher story here. Uh, keep in mind, as far as a recent discussion in just the past two to four weeks, we've seen some of U.S. export sales a little weak. Uh, today's number is 47% below the five-year average. Uh, you look at this Brazil pricing issue, and, they, and they've got us beat right now and certainly have us beat for two to five months out ahead. So I think on this issue, this is a valid concern for us in these next few weeks ahead here. All right. Any quick expectations for the upcoming reports today? You know, I do think as far as this, this discussion here, we probably will see a very slight change to U.S. corn inning stocks. Uh, average trade guess is just about a 23 million bushel decline. Uh, our numbers are, in this case, just a very slight increase, but those don't change the corn story. Uh, the soybean numbers are where we could see some surprises. Uh, the trade suggests uh, as a minimal uh, decline. Keep in mind, in recent years, we've seen these numbers move anywhere from 40 to 90 million bushels. And for the discussion on soybeans, that could mean 70 cents to a dollar five. So this could be a, a, something to watch quite closely for soybeans. Thanks for that analysis. Rich Nelson, Allen Dale, we'll have more on day coming up. To talk to Rich Nelson one-on-one, call 800-262-7538. Well, earlier we looked at the rain chances for Friday and Saturday. In terms of the flooding potential for our Friday, we are clear for a good portion of the United States. But where we're seeing the pocket of energy in the jet stream, specifically that trough, that's where we could see a flooding potential, about 15 to 40% chance of some flooding into New York City and up here onto the East Coast, a 5 to 15 into Minnesota, Minneapolis, a little bit into Wisconsin, and Canada coming up on Friday. By Saturday, that energy pushes off to the north and east, and you see a return to the possibility for some showers, 5 to 15% chance of some flooding potential on Saturday uh, back into New Mexico and also a little bit into Texas. Uh, to go along with that, you got the flooding. Well, the severe weather potential is there as well. This is coming up for our Friday. A few tornadoes, damaging winds, heavy rain and large hail uh, right into parts of the Dakotas, into Minnesota, a little bit into uh, Omaha and Iowa as well with few severe storms. This is not going to be an outbreak, but the energy is there with support from the jet stream that you may start to see some stronger thunderstorms in that location. That temperature outlook hasn't changed all that much, and it's got to be a pretty big signal uh, for you to see a map like this with nearly two-thirds of the United States uh, above average or uh, temperatures above normal for this time of year. But I do want to hint that towards the tail end of this, October 6th and October 7th, we're starting to see that jet stream move along, which means cooler temperatures are going to be on the way come middle of October as a trough digs through the United States kicks the ridge out. So keep that in mind after this period, this time period, uh, expect uh, things to start cooling down, feeling a little bit more like fall for a good portion of the United States. As for that jet stream coming up for our Friday again, we looked at this earlier. A high amplitude ridge is going to force this trough, this jet stream to dig way down here to the south and set up what's called an omega block. So you got your, your trough here, your ridge there, and the trough back behind me. This pattern is going to be sticking around not only on Sunday, but through most of next week. We'll start off with Colorado Eagle, sunny, high around 79 degrees, low of 39 degrees. Iowa, that is a high around 90, low of 70 degrees. And then uh, what you can't do, you can do. North Dakota, 72 degrees, low of 43.
Ag Day is brought to you by ESN. Maximize the performance of your nutrient applications and minimize nitrogen loss by applying ESN. Learn how at smartnitrogen.com. As the combines start rolling across the country, farmers are focused on taking crops off the land. However, there are some farmers that are also planting crops in the fall to help them flip their soil. Michelle Rook heads to the field to get some advice. As farmers move into the fall harvest season, it's a great time to be thinking about ways to improve soil health, including implementing cover crops. SDSU soil specialist Anthony Bly is also a farmer that has used soil health practices for 30 years. He says there are various late season cover crops farmers can plant depending on their goals and climate. Bly plants a 12-way mix on his own farm. I have brassicas in there, I have legumes in there, I have a few warm seasons, just a couple. Two of the 12 are warm season, but predominantly all the rest are, are cool season species in, in the mix. And I've got every one of them in there for diversity. And he selects each cover crop species with a specific goal in mind. For example, flax. Science has shown that flax really forms mycorrhizae associations on its roots, so it, 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 it promotes mycorrhizae fungi development in the soil. But he also has various rooting cover crops. It's good to have a diverse rooting community, not have all tap roots or all fibrous roots, but a diverse mix of all of those uh, uh, root styles, if you will, root architecture. So, so that's why I have both fibrous and tap roots. I have the radishes and the turnips in there. Those as well as other cover crop species help build organic matter and carbon in the soil. And the brassicas and the uh, turnips and the broadleaf crops, the legume crops promote breakdown of crop residues. And so I need more carbon, so I'm going to be a heavy, more of a heavy carbon cover crop. USDA provides technical assistance on cover crops, and the agency will also provide payments for new and existing cover crop users. I'm Michelle Rook reporting for Ag Day. All right, thanks, Michelle. Up next, farmers are rushing to get fall field work done before winter. What winter could look like as an El Nino develops in the Pacific, today in the country. can we say winter is coming, but an El Nino winter is headed our way. It's a natural warming of the Pacific Ocean along the equator, and climate scientists say El Nino has the potential to upend our already wild winter weather expectations. Mike Valerio has a brief breakdown of what it all means. This year, scientists are watching a rapidly developing and strengthening El Nino event. It's a natural climate pattern, typically every two to seven years, bringing warmer than average sea surface temperatures to the equatorial Pacific Ocean. That warming can influence our winter weather. The effects of El Nino are pretty pronounced across a lot of the continent and really a lot of the world. Dr. Daniel Swain, a UCLA climate scientist, explains El Nino is not just a Pacific story. The phenomenon typically leads to warmer and drier conditions in northern sections of the U.S., with cooler and wetter weather across southern stretches of the country. After California endured a winter of relentless atmospheric river systems, El Nino likely means more winter storms this coming January through March could be on the way. I think there is a tilt in the odds towards a wetter than average winter, especially in Southern and Central California, as well as other parts of the interior Southwestern US. 
Dr. Swain adds El Nino could mean an unusually dry winter in the Pacific Northwest and Hawaii, where we've seen wildfires like the devastation in August in Lahaina. But a curveball in this year's El Nino predictions, how the abnormally warm water across the rest of the world's oceans could change how El Nino impacts us. The global oceans outside of the El Nino zone in the tropics are also extremely warm. And so that combination is something we haven't seen before. I'm Mike Valerio reporting. All right, thanks, Mike. And that's all the time we have this morning. We're sure glad you tuned in. From all of us here at Ag Today, I'm Clinton Have a great day.